Well, it is my joy uh, to introduce to you today our speaker. Uh, Pastor Chris is still up with the Tahoe group, but he asked a friend of his to come and preach with us this morning. Um, Scott Denny is one of the elders over at Grace Bible Church in Pleasant Hill, and he's been on staff there for, for over 20 years. And uh, he's here with his family and his crew this morning. We're thankful for you guys being here. I want to welcome you here. I'm very thankful that you're willing to come and preach the word. So Clayton Valley Church, will you please welcome Scott as he comes to open the word. Well, good morning, everyone. It is my pleasure to be here with you this morning, as Andrew shared. Um, Chris and I are pretty, pretty good friends. Uh, it was a relationship that began um, in the freshman year of our two of our oldest children on the football field at Berean Christian High School. We were watching them practice one summer. We struck up a conversation, and as the saying goes, that was the beginning of a wonderful friendship. Our families have become very close over the years, and so when Chris reached out to me a couple weeks ago and asked me to pinch hit in the ninth inning, I was happy to do so and rearranged some things back home at Grace Bible Church so we could be here this morning to bring the Word of God to you. So it's my privilege to be here with you all, and I'm, I'm grateful to do it. You know, I have a great amount of respect for the Word that's preached from this pulpit and all the care and concern that, that comes with it to, um, to encourage you, to equip you for the work of the ministry here at Clayton Valley. And so it's been my prayer that I would be faithful to the Word here that I might encourage you and equip you also for the work of the ministry. You know, all over the country today, people are celebrating Father's Day. And I wanted to use our time this morning to reflect on the love of our Heavenly Father. We sang a little bit about the, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure. And so my prayer has been that I, can ho- I hope to show you from the Scriptures that God's love for you is immeasurable. That, and I pray that the Spirit of God enlighten the eyes of your hearts so that you might be compelled, constrained to respond by loving Him deeply and passionately and that in doing so, then the love of, that the love of Christ then might compel you to love your neighbor as yourself, to love you, to love and serve others here at Clayton Valley and the community around you. Um, we'll be in a variety of texts this morning. I think my outline is in, is in your bulletin. I'll be bouncing all over the place. You don't need to do that. You're welcome to. Um, but I, wanna, I want us to first consider the words from, from the Apostle John uh, in 1 John chapter 3 where he says, Behold, or see... What manner or what kind of love is this? What kind of love is this? That we should be called children of God. And then he says, and so we are. What kind of love is this? John is literally saying, look at this. Look, behold, gaze upon this love. A love that is foreign to the human race. Um, A kind of love that is out of this world. He says, behold it. And then John will go on to say in 1 John 4, 8, he says, God is love. He is love. John is declaring that the very nature and the very essence of God is love. Everything that God the Father says and does is an expression of his love. It's intrinsic. It's intrinsic to who he is. But because God is love, that doesn't mean that all of his other attributes are trumped by love. 
And that somehow because God is love, he therefore turns a blind eye to sin. Because in our culture, after all, love is love. And if love is love, then love is all that matters. But God does not work that way. It is who he is. But God exercises his love in conjunction with all of his other attributes. God is love in a holy way. God's wrath is born out of his love. God loves in a just way. God God loves in a way that is holy and, and so on. In a broken world, though, we don't see this kind of love relationally with people. We don't see a perfect love that works in harmony with righteousness, with justice, with goodness, with holiness. We don't love this way. In part, and it's not, it's not, that kind of love is not part of who we are. It's not intrinsic to us. John exclaims, what kind of love is this that would take broken people and make them whole? That would take enemies and make them friends? That would take strangers and make them family? See, it's an amazing kind of love. I think we must not only be amazed by it, but I think the scriptures emphasize that we must respond to it. John will go on to say in 1 John 4, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another. Love is from God, he says, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. For the Christian cannot simply say God is love and then do nothing about it with his or her life and simply go on living whatever way you choose to live because God is love and therefore God will turn a blind eye to how I choose to live my life. God is love, yeah. But we must seek to respond by being a people who love him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, and then be a people who seek to love our neighbors, being compelled to do so because of our love for God. So this morning, I'd like us to consider five qualities of God's love that I pray will lead us to worship God deeply and passionately and serve others faithfully. In your outline, you'll see that I'm writing that the five qualities are God loves sovereignly, he loves uniquely, he loves redemptively, personally, and compellingly. First, I want us to consider that God loves uh, sovereignly. God loves sovereignly. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7, and the first part of verse 8, says this. Moses writing, It was not because, in speaking, speaking for God, it was not because you were more, were more in number than any other people than the, that the Lord God set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because that the Lord loves you. Here's what I want you to see in that verse. God was not moved to love Israel because of anything in them. He simply loved them, he says, because he loved them. His love for them was not dependent on their loveliness. His love was not dependent on their faithfulness. His love was not dependent on their righteousness or their greatness. It was dependent on nothing. God says that he loved Israel not because they were a great nation. Not because they were a great nation. Verse 8, he chose to love them simply because he chose to love them. 
His love was based on his own, on his own unchanging will, on his own desire to set his affections upon a people who were the fewest of all people. And if anything compelled him to love Israel, to love them, when he did not want to love them, then he would not be sovereign and he would not be God. So what's that mean for you and me? Well, because he loves sovereignly, that means he loves his people unconditionally. And if he loves his people unconditionally, then it means his love for his people is unchanging. It is immovable. It is steadfast. If his love is unchanging, then it is certain. If his love is certain, then God can be trusted to love his people at all times. No matter how far you've fallen, no matter how great your sin, nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8. Romans 8. And not only that, but you cannot make yourself lovely. You cannot clean yourself up. You cannot make God want to love you. He loves in ways that are foreign. Let me see if I can illustrate it for you this way. Why do I love my wife? Because 30 years ago, or over 30 years ago, I was drawn to her. I was drawn to her beauty. I was drawn to her laugh. I was drawn to her personality, her humor. I was drawn to her. There was something about her that made me want to set my affections upon her. God does not love you that way. He didn't choose to love you because you are a great person. He did not choose to love you because you faithfully went to Sunday school and memorized all your Awana verses. He didn't choose to delight in you because he knew you would love him back. God is not drawn to you. Jesus makes that clear in John 6, where he says, no one comes to the Father except those he draws to himself. God draws you. His affections toward us are not moved in anything by us. And therefore, it cannot be unmoved by us. Our failure to love God, obey God, and love and serve others does not move God to unlove us. It is why we can trust God at his word. In Hebrews 13, 5, where he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We need to grasp that truth in times of doubt and temptation. That no matter how far you've fallen, no matter how great the sin, if you're a Christian this, here this morning, let that be of comfort to you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Yes, God loves sovereignly, but let me tell you, he also loves you uniquely. He loves a particular people in a particular kind of way. Here's what I mean. Scriptures do say that God is good to all. Psalm 145, verse 9. And he does make it rain on the just and the unjust, Matthew 5. And yes, he does feed the birds of the air and he does clothe the fields with beautiful flowers. Why? Because he loves his creation. He loves what he made. 
His provision and kindness and grace is a demonstration of his love for what he has created out of nothing. But while he expresses his love in a common way to all of creation, he also expresses his love in a unique way to a particular kind of people in a particular kind of way. Look again at Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people's who are on the face of the earth. God chose Israel to be what? His treasured possession over all the peoples on the face of the earth. Does he love all the peoples? Yes, in a particular kind of way, in a general kind of way. But with this nation, he said, you are my treasured possession. That word is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to refer to a king's private fortune. A king has fortune. But it's also used to refer to a king's private fortune. Fortune belongs only to him. God owns everything. Yet Israel was his private treasure. A treasure set apart and uniquely loved by him. And why would he treasure Israel above all others? Well, he says, it was not because you were more in number but it was because I simply chose to love you. He treasured them and loved them simply because he loved them in a way that he didn't love anything else. Scriptures declare in the New Testament that God loves his church in the same kind of particular way. Why did God determine to love you and to love me? Why did he choose to love us? Why did he choose to make us his special possession? Ephesians 2 verse 4 says, But God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Because of the great love with which he loved us, before the foundations of the world, he set his affections upon you, upon his people. If you're a Christian here today, His affections were set upon you and me to love us in a unique way that he does not express towards others. Let me illustrate it with you or for you again by using my wife as an illustration. I love my wife. She's my best friend. I love her to the depths of my soul. I also love my children, two of whom are, three of whom are here today. I love the people of God. I love the San Francisco Giants. But I do not love the Giants the way I love my wife. I do not love the people of God the way I love my wife. I do not love my family, my children. They do not make me go weak in my knees like my wife does. They make me go weak for other reasons. But my wife, my affection for my wife is a specific kind of affection. I don't show love to anyone else the way I show it to my wife. I love my wife uniquely from everyone else on this planet. And yet, I love everyone else. I'm compelled to love everyone else. But I don't love them in the same way. 
My love is special and unique for my wife. God's love for his church is special and unique for his church. He loves her with an everlasting love. He loves her with a faithful love. He loves her with a compassionate love, with a steadfast love, with a sacrificial love, with a grace-abounding love. He loves her uniquely. It is that kind of love that he only has for you if you're a Christian here this morning. Let me ask you something. If you're a Christian here this morning, is that the kind of love you have for God? Is your love for him the same kind of unique love he has for you? Do you love God the way you love Warriors basketball? Do you spend more time getting to know your favorite characters on your favorite television show more than you spend time getting to know the lover of your soul? Do you spend more time with your favorite video games, mastering every level, more than you spend time mastering the word of God where God is communicated, where he makes himself known? Maybe I'll push a few buttons here. Do you, do you love your own political preferences? more than you love the God who sits above all of it. All of it. Send your emails to Chris. <laughs> Does your love for God even come close to the love you have for your job, for success, for money, for happiness, for contentment? The greatest commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. He loves you with a great and passionate and zealous kind of love. Love him more than you love anything else. And if you don't love him that way, ask yourself why. Spend time meditating, reflecting, thinking, upon the word of God, draw near to him through his word, draw near to him through prayer. Ask him to open your eyes to help you see what stands in your way, what blocks your way from loving him with the kind of love that he loves you with. God's love is both sovereign and it is unique. But how is it a holy just and righteous God can love a totally flawed, rebellious people without violating his own justice, holiness, and righteousness. Because he also loves redemptively. A great price was paid in order for a holy God to love an unholy people. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. The precious blood of Christ was shed for you and me. John, the Apostle John, in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, he will write this. He says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Two observations about this verse. 
In it, I believe we see our problem and we see God's solution. Our problem, verse 10, is sin. 1 John 3, 4 says, sin is lawlessness. It's rebellion against a holy God. The extent of that rebellion, the Bible says, is now part of the human DNA. All of humanity is enslaved to the power, the presence, the stain of sin. All of humanity is enslaved to its own wants, its own desires. And all of humanity has zero desire to want to please God, know God, or love God. I know you're all familiar with the passage from Romans chapter 3, where Paul speaks this very same way. Chapter 3, verses 10 and following, he says, No one, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God in their eyes. From the beginning, all of humanity, every one of you in this room was like that, but for Christ. From the beginning, all of humanity has decided to live life by its own rules, on its own terms. Isaiah 53, 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to the, our own way. All of humanity has rebelled against God. And Romans 5, 10 says, we are now all enemies of God. Enemies. Ephesians 2 verse 3 says, We are children of wrath. God in His righteousness and holiness has declared that the wage, the penalty for man's rebellion is death. Physical death and eternal death. Eternal separation. Spiritual death. Eternal separation from a holy God. Our problem is sin. And because God is a holy and just God, His wrath must be satisfied. His love for his name brings about the wrath upon those who would violate it. His love for his glory, his reputation, his holiness. Sin perverts that. And wrath is God's response. His wrath must be satisfied. Our problem is sin. And wrath must be dealt with. And it will not be satisfied until all sin has been dealt for, has been dealt with for all time. You see, our problem is greater than our ability to solve it. God's solution, though, was to send his only son into the world. That the son would satisfy the wrath of the father. He sent his own son to be the propitiation, John says, for his own wrath. Think about that. God's rebellion, our rebellion, deserves the wrath of God. God's response out of love for you and me was to send his own son to bear his wrath upon his body that we might be called children of God. 1 John 4, verse 10, 
He says those very words. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation, he came to absorb, take upon himself the full wrath of God. In summary, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11 speaks about this, that the love of God was made known because the eternal Son of God humbled himself. He humbled himself and he entered into humanity and he put on flesh and he lived a a life of complete obedience to God the Father. And he went to the cross to suffer and die and bear upon himself the full wrath of God, not for his sin, but for our sin. God's righteousness demanded payment for sin. And in God's loving kindness, he paid for it in full for all eternity by sending his son. Our debt is paid in full by the substitutionary atoning death of the Son of God. And having satisfied the debt in full, God rose him from the dead, where he now stands as victor over sin and death. And God, he now sits at the right hand of God, highly exalted with the name that is above every other name. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Can you see why John would say, what kind of love is this? What manner of love is this? It's redeeming love. How do you come to know this kind of love? How do you receive this kind of love? You don't earn it. You don't clean yourself up. You you don't become lovely. By faith, you look to the Son of God. You look to his redemptive work on your behalf and you repent of your own efforts to try to please God. You repent of your own efforts to be your own God, to live according to your own wants and desires. And you place all your hope, all your faith, all your trust in the substitutionary life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, you are assured that you are received into the family of God. John 1.12, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. He gave that right. God not only loves us redemptively, he loves us personally. He loves us intimately. Sometimes I think in our Reformed circles, we don't make much of God's love for us. Perhaps as a response to the extreme some churches go by making everything about the love of God, making everything about emotion and sentiment. Perhaps we don't make much of God, though, because we are more comfortable with a sovereign God who maybe has no emotion and therefore is more predictable. But God is full of emotion. He's full of passion for you, for his church. And it oozes out of him the more you contemplate him, the more you dwell upon the love, of, the love he has for you, the more you see how passionate it is for you, for his people. His emotions don't change him. Unlike us, our emotions can change us. His emotions don't change him. They work in concert with everything about him 
when he takes up, when he takes busted, broken, rebellious people, and rather than doing what would be fair and what would be just, he makes them children. He makes them, he makes the unlovely lovely. He makes the unlovable lovable. That is amazing love. Is it any wonder the psalmist will say, Oh, taste and see. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. We are invited to savor God, to delight in Him. That kind of love is a relational love, it's an intimate love, it's very personal. John declares that we are not just called children of God, we are children of God. As if by birth, because we've been born again into a family of God. We are now brothers and sisters. We are joint heirs with Christ. Christ is our brother. We are children. This is familial love. It's a very personal love. He does not love you at a distance. And when I think when it seems like he does love you at a distance... It's perhaps because you've become distant from him. His love for you is up close and it's personal. Listen to how the psalmist speaks about, that, about God's love for you. In Psalm 139, the first few verses, he says this, David says this, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. In Psalm 34, verse 18, the psalmist says, The Lord is near, he's close to the brokenhearted. In Psalm 33, God is, is said of God that he is the lifter of our heads. That's personal, that's intimate. Anyone, one of you who have ever grieved before, been so- sad, had deep sorrow, there's something about someone coming to you and lifting you up and holding on to you. He is the lifter of your head. Psalm 103, verse 13 says, The Lord shows compassion. Verse 14, He knows your frame. He knows you're but dust. He knows that you're weak and you're frail. He knows that you can only take so much. He knows. God knows us personally. He loves you intimately. Through his son, we know he knows pain. He knows sorrow. He knows grief. Christ was a man acquainted with sorrow, acquainted with grief, tempted in every single way, every kind of way that you and I are, yet without sin, he understands the weight of temptation. Is it any wonder why Christ would say, come to me in Matthew 11? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Too often, we find solutions to our pain, to our suffering, in a bottle in drugs, alcohol. We seek comfort for our sorrow through pornography 
or harming our bodies. Those solutions leave you empty. Those solutions do not understand pain. They do not understand grief. They cannot carry you. They cannot lift your head. They promise you what they cannot give you. Comfort, peace, rest. No matter how much you cut, no matter how much you drink, no matter how much pornography you watch, you are always still wanting more. It will not satisfy. It will not comfort. It will not lift your head. You are always left wanting more. So I beseech you, come to the one who will never leave you thirsty, who will never leave you dry, who will never leave you hungry. Jeremiah in chapter 2 would tell the nation of Israel, come to the fountain. Come to the fountain and drink. Christ is the fountain of living water. If you are thirsty, drink. Drink with the one who says, come. Come to me. Peter says in verse, chapter 5, verse 7, he exhorts the people to cast all their anxieties upon God because he cares for them, because he loves them. God loves you sovereignly, uniquely, redemptively, and, and personally. He also loves you compellingly. Compellingly. God loves in a manner that compels us to love him and others. 1 John 4, verse 11 John writes, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. John says we are compelled by love to love. John is making a case here that the manner and the way in which God loves us, it must compel us to love in the same way. We are called as children of God to love God with all our hearts. We are called to love our neighbor as ourselves. There's nothing excluded from those categories. Love God, love everyone else. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 and 15, Paul writes these words. He says, For the love of Christ controls us, constrains us, binds us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The love of Christ compels Paul. Christ's love for Paul compels Paul to respond in a way to not live for himself but to live for Christ. That's why Paul would say, I can count all things lost. I count all things lost in, in Philippians. I count all things lost because of his focus was on Christ. Christ was the only thing that mattered. As Paul meditates and dwells on Christ's love for him, he cannot help but respond to live for Christ and Christ alone. He says he is constrained, he is compelled, he is bound 
to live in a way that seeks to amplify, to magnify the name of Christ, not the name of Paul. Imagine what our marriages would look like if we responded this way. If in our marriages we loved our spouses for Christ's sake, for Christ's glory, and for his reputation, and not for our own glory, for our own reputation, for our own wants, and for our own desires. Why do fights and quarrels break out among us? James says, well, because we're selfish. Because we want what we don't have. Why do we grumble and complain and snipe at others? Because we're selfish. And we want what we want. In those moments, we live for our glory, not for the glory of God. We live for the love of self, not for the love of others. Imagine what our friendships would look like, our relationships with our neighbors, our coworkers, our classmates. What would they look like if we consider for a moment that God has placed his affections upon us, not because we were worthy, but simply because he chose to love us with the affection a father has for a child? What might it look like if you dwelt upon that great love and then chose to love others in the same manner, not because they're worthy, but simply because you chose to love them. You chose to love the unlovely. You chose to bless those who curse you. Simply seeking to show grace, mercy, and compassion to others, just as your heavenly Father has shown you grace, mercy, and compassion, not because you deserve it, but simply because he loved you. The love of Christ compels us to live for him and not for us. Are you compelled by the love of Christ to love others? Does the love of Christ motivate you to love others? If not, then you need to ask yourself, what does compel you to action? You love something, you respond to life, and you act accordingly. Parents, when we, dads, when we yell at our children, what has compelled us to action? Is it our love for Christ? Or is it our love for peace in the moment because the game's on? When you gossip about others, what has compelled you to action? Is it your love for others and seeking after their best interest? Or is it your love for your own reputation? seeking to exalt yourself. When you lust after another woman or a man, what has compelled you to action? Is it your love for Christ? For God's glory? Or is it your love for your own pleasure? See, for many of us, for all of us, answering these kinds of questions means examining our lives closely and asking ourselves, who or what do I really love? The love of Christ compels us to respond in ways that communicate you love God more, more than you love this world or the things in this world. If you're finding yourself not responding the way God says you should be responding, then perhaps you need to quote Thomas Chalmers, a 19th century minister. Perhaps you need the expulsive power of a new affection of a new affection 
Perhaps you need an affection for God, a depth of love that is greater than anything else. Perhaps you need to sit at the foot of the cross and examine your life in light of all that Christ has done for you. And as you do so, then leave behind whatever hinders you, whatever hinders you from loving him with all your heart. Leave it behind. Perhaps some of you may be for the first time, maybe you're seeing the now extent and the depth of how far God had to go to bring someone into his family. If so, let me assure you that it's never too late to lay your burdens, to lay your religion, to lay your own efforts at the cross and look to Christ, maybe for the first time, as your Savior. God's love is great for you. It is boundless. It is unmeasurable. And I pray for each of us that it compels us to love him deeply and to love others richly. Let me pray. God in heaven, thank you, God, for your faithfulness to us. Thank you, Lord, for the great love with which you loved us. Thank you, God, that you have given us a hope that is eternal. You have set us into a family that is never changing. You have granted us, Lord, eternal life. You have granted us, Lord, to be called children, to be children of God. You are our Heavenly Father. You are the one who has loved us deeply. You are the one who has loved us passionately. God, would you cause our own hearts to be stirred, to reject the things of this world, and to grab hold of Christ for the glory of his name, I pray. Amen.